Dear congregation, we arrive tonight at that section of Scripture which the New Testament calls the days of Noah. Obviously, a very important section of Scripture, and only because of its continually being referenced in the New Testament, but also because four chapters in Genesis, Genesis 6 through 9, are devoted to the days of Noah. And this evening, we want to concentrate simply on the lessons that we are called to learn from the first half of chapter 6. And God willing, then, as we enter the Passion Weeks, the continuation of this series will be postponed um, until the summer months. We want to look especially at verses 5 through 8, 5 through 8 of Genesis 6. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repented me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Well, in these verses we find the familiar biblical triad of sin, judgment, and salvation. And we want to look at this section under those themes. So our theme is the days of Noah before the flood. The days of Noah before the flood. And we will see that these days teach us lessons, first, about the extensiveness of human sin. The extensiveness of human sin. Second, the inevitability of divine judgment. The inevitability of divine judgment. And third, the method of divine salvation. The method of divine salvation. So the days of Noah before the flood reveal to us the extensiveness of human sin, the inevitability of divine judgment, and the method of divine salvation. One of the most obvious truths of the opening chapters of Genesis is that sin grows and spreads like a rampant weed. From the moment of Adam's disobedience in chapter 3, we have seen in our studies of Genesis how sin has gained momentum and has swept through, especially the line of the Cainites. Sin spreads intensively downward into the depths of man's life, but also extensively outward, impacting every area of his life and polluting society as a whole. We have seen that already, that sin has impacted the marriage of Adam and Eve, and then it impacted his family in the battle between Cain and Abel, and then we saw that it impacted society, 
in the two lines that develop between the Sethites and the Cainites. But now, tonight, we see that sin is magnified on a worldwide scale. Verse 5 of our chapter summarizes it all in a dreadful way. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That word saw is a very solemn word. You remember that we've already seen what God saw back in chapter 1. God saw the world that He made. God saw His whole creation. And behold, remember boys and girls, it was very good. And now God sees again His world And it is very bad. Not as He made it, but as sin spoiled it. And the badness of this world, the evil of this world, this world which once gave God great satisfaction, now gives God great pain, great sorrow. Verse 6 says, It repented the Lord that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved Him at His heart. So what God sees when He looks on this world is total beauty, trumped by total depravity, the kind of depravity you heard about this morning. God looks on man, and He sees our wickedness, and He sees that even every thought was continually evil. Every thought. That is what total depravity means, isn't it? That not only every impact of sin is made in every aspect of our personality, so that our will and our consciences and our affections are all tainted with sin, but deep down, our every thought is polluted. And this isn't only a theological truth. We embrace with a nod of the head and a confession of our lips. But this is a personal truth, congregation. God has to teach us this, that we are so corrupt that apart from His grace, there is no sin in which it would be impossible for us to to plummet into. There is nothing beyond the range of our depravity. So serious is our disobedience to God. So dangerous is our human nature. There is nothing beyond our possibility. Now many people think to themselves, when they read the newspaper or something of that nature, they say, well, others others will go to that extreme, but I would never do that. But God says, you see, this is a commentary not only on mankind, but we as part of mankind, God says... Our thoughts, our very thought lives are only evil continually by nature. And it's only one step, you know, from a thought to an action. Thus, there is nothing out of the question for any of us. And it must be our continual prayer every day. Lord, keep me from sin. Set a watch upon my lips. Set controls in my actions. But above all, help me to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, this chapter then is a very sad commentary on the marks of depravity that swept through the ancient world. And we want to follow that sad history now. First, you, if you follow with me, this history permeates the realm of marriage. Look at verses 1 and 2 of this chapter. It came to pass when men began to multiply in the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. This is actually quite a complex portion, and there's been many different things surmised about who these sons of God are here. There are some who think that since the sons of God is a common term for angelic beings, in fact, all three times, the exact phrase sons of God is used in the Bible, all three in the book of Job, it refers to angels. And so there were some ancient fathers and others who said that somehow angels entered into a kind of marriage with the daughters of men. But that is scarcely possible, is it? Because the New Testament tells us that angelic beings neither marry nor are given in marriage. It tells us they are asexual beings. They, that is, they have no maleness or femaleness about them. And then, too, it would be most implausible to consider that angels and women could have such a relationship. There are others that say, well, the sons of God referred to here means... Great rulers, great men in the earth, high-ranking men or princes. That's the meaning the word has in Psalm 82 when it says, God judgeth among the gods. And that interpretation has been revived in recent scholarship, even by some conservative scholars, due to archaeological evidence being uncovered about the Near Eastern practices of divine kingship and royal harems. And so they say probably what happened was there was an elite group of people, of princes that grew up on the earth, and they married the daughters of men. And they had these giants. The problem with this, however, is that though the rulers are sometimes called gods in the Bible, they are never referred to as the sons of God. And so we are better off, I believe, interpreting the sons of God here as Calvin and Luther did, that it means the godly line of Seth. That is, those adopted sons of God, whom God had given in the line of Seth. They were marked by obedience and godliness. They were sons and daughters of the Most High. And they were in contrast to the sons and daughters of the line of Cain. Now, this view is supported also by Deuteronomy 14, where God says in verse 1, Ye are the children, literally the sons, of the Lord your God. That is, a covenant people who walk in God's ways are sons of God. So what then does Genesis 6 verse 2 mean? Well, it probably means that the godly line of Seth was now degenerating by marrying the ungodly line of the daughters of Cain. And they were marrying these women of Cain based on their physical beauty alone. 
Look again at verse 2. The sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, that they were beautiful, and they took them wives of all which they chose, that which God had decreed, or or rather God had directed them to. Everything is, of course, in God's decree. Now, it seems to be significant here that the degeneration, the worldwide degeneration, really came through this door of uncontrolled marriage. It came through this door of physical accentuation. That is to say, the men from the godly line began to be consumed with the physical beauty of the women of the ungodly line and allowed the physical beauty to take control of the relationship so that they married these women which they had no business marrying. Now that is not to say, of course, that physical attraction has no role to play in marriage. That would be foolish, of course, to say something of that nature. God has placed that physical element of attraction there. But what it does mean is that marriage is intended by God to be built primarily on a spiritual plane, a spiritual relationship. A man needs a helpmeet, we learn at the beginning of Genesis, you remember that, in order that he may glorify and honor God. But what happens now in the world of Genesis 6 is that beauty divorced from real goodness, from real godliness, is exalted and even idolized. And when that happens, friends, then beauty will fade in short order into homeliness and into destructiveness in the marital union. Now this is all true, every bit as much true today as it was 6,000 years ago. And I say to you freely tonight, young people, If you look for a person based on physical beauty and you marry that person, that beauty will soon lose its luster if you do not build your relationship on the spiritual plane and a spiritual foundation. And on the other hand, a person that may only be average looking in your eyes, but may be spiritual and godly and you build your home on a spiritual relationship, that person will become, in your eyes, peculiarly attractive and beautiful to you. Well, notice now that God's plan for marriage here is also revealed as an exclusive permanent union of one man with one woman. That too was a problem. Look at the end of verse 2. They took them wives, notice the plural, of all which they chose. One translation has it this way. They married as many of them, those daughters of of men, as they chose. So they were polygamous. They were taking more than one wife. They They were hoarding women to themselves. They were rebelling against the exclusiveness of the marital union that God had established in the one to one relationship with Adam and Eve. Now, isn't it interesting that whenever a society begins to corrupt itself, you will find these two things happening. Not just our society today, not just this society, but the Greek society, other societies in the past, great societies, 
These same two things open the door to worldwide or society-wide corruption. Departing from the will of God and seeing the marital bond as primarily a spiritual bond, accentuating the physical, and developing other kinds of relationships other than the one man, one woman, husband, wife bond in marriage. Would you like to deepen your understanding of Reformed theology? Check out Reformed Systematic Theology, Volume 4, Church and Last Things by Dr. Joel Beakey and Paul Smalley. This book will lead you to explore key scripture topics from biblical, doctrinal, experiential, and practical perspectives. Order the culmination of Dr. Beakey's life's work at heritagebooks.org rst4. So what happens here? Well, the godly line of Seth engages in a mixed marriage with the ungodly line of Cain. God warned against this very thing. In fact, in Deuteronomy 7, verse 3, later on, He would explicitly say, Neither shalt thou make marriages with them, speaking of the ungodly line round about Israel. But here you see, they go ahead and do this. And they do this in a frightfully parallel manner with Eve's eating of the forbidden fruit in Genesis 3. Notice what it says in Genesis 6 verse 2 here. They saw the women were fair and they took. And then you look back at Genesis 3, 6 and you look at what Eve went through and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food that it was pleasant to the eyes, it was fair, she took of the fruit thereof. So what's happening? What's happening is they're just living out their original sin. And if God doesn't prevent it, we live that out as well. They are driven by lust and not by spiritual discernment. And when lust conceives, it brings forth death. It brings forth destruction, James tells us. It brings forth further spiritual decline. Sin unchecked simply augments itself. The godly line now becomes entangled and corrupted by the ungodly line. The ungodly become more ungodly. The godly become more ungodly. And the whole of society is broken down. And that wonderful two-line Discernment we saw in the last case in Genesis 4 and 5 is now wiped away and the barrier between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is broken. That's the tragedy of Genesis 6. The whole world becomes filled with evil. All except Noah and his household. And iniquity is filling the earth. God sees a full cup of sin. You see, this isn't just the case of one or two individuals being entrapped, like Samson. Nor the case even of an entire nation backsliding, like Israel. But it's the whole world. So God sees the iniquity, He sees the destruction, and He determines to destroy the whole of mankind except Noah. How critical this is to understand 
for us still today, for you young people. When you look for a partner, if you don't want to destroy your world, if I may say it so, look for someone with whom you can build a spiritual relationship. Never choose physical beauty at the expense of godly piety. Well, next, this corruption moves from the marital relationship to the corruption of the mind. I go back with you again to verse 5. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So, once man had degenerated in marriage, once man had become physically oriented, that took over his mind more and more. Sin made its corrupting effects felt throughout his entire mind. You see, all the springs of evil that impact our wills and our consciences and our affections and the various usages of the parts of our body, all of that is rooted in our mind. And when our mind becomes evil, our whole being becomes evil. And then we become, as Paul says it, slaves, sinaholics, slaves of sin. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. It is our mind, you see, that can destroy us. And what happens today, of course, as in that day as well, but today in a particularly large measure, is that a godless society is desperately feeding our mind and our thinking with a corrupting material in every form of media that will accentuate our depravity. And so what we think about and what we look at and then reflect upon influences who we are. Feed your mind with garbage. This will be the result. Every imagination of the thoughts of your heart be evil continually. Dear congregation, what do we allow our minds to think about? Do you discipline your mind? Or do you use reading or speaking with others or the very things you look at to encourage your mind to go down wrong pathways? It's an important question. What do we read? Today, even in an acceptable bookstore, a respectable bookstore, you can scarcely find even a few novels that are not laced with explicit violations of the Ten Commandments. Nearly all the secular reading today violates godliness. It invades our mind. It pollutes our thinking. And the very depravity described in this verse and that you heard about this morning then gains the more mastery over us. We're bad enough. We're corrupt enough all by ourselves, by nature, without having our minds fed with more pollution and more depravity. And then thirdly, we see in this society not only corruption in marriage and in the mind, but corruption spread throughout society in general. Notice verses 11 through 13. The earth also, God complains, was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. 
And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So God says, This plague of sin has so penetrated society that the whole of society is filled with two things. Violence and corruption. And the word for corruption here is really the word for destruction through inward rottenness. God is saying, boys and girls, that the whole world was like a rotten tree. You might only see it a little bit here and there on the outside that the tree was decayed. But inside, the tree is rotting away. It is tearing itself apart. It is bringing about its own ultimate collapse. And God is saying to Moses, to to Noah rather, this is what your society is doing. It is rotting from within. It is destroying itself. And that's what Jesus said. The last days, our days, will be like. And they are, aren't they? As it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be in the last days. We are destroying ourselves. We are inwardly rotting away with sinful thoughts, sinful words, sinful actions. That's our earth. We see it everywhere. We hear it everywhere. And if we look inside, we ought to know it as well. And we ought to be earnest, serious, godly people that wage with God's strength and by the Spirit's grace mighty and holy warfare against sin in its every dimension. We ought to be haters of sin and lovers of righteousness. How is it with us? How is it with you? Are you inwardly rotting away in your mind, allowing sinful thoughts to penetrate? Or are you growing in holiness and in the fear of the Most High God. Thank you for listening to Doctrine for Life with Dr. Joel Beakey. If you were encouraged by this episode and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing and sharing with a friend. To enjoy more resources from the pen and pulpit of Dr. Beakey, please visit joelbeakey.org.